Hello and welcome to Asia Fast Straight Talk, our podcast series dedicated to exploring the future of business operations and the road to one office. My name is Rita Fleming, and for the next 30 minutes or so, we're going to explore the extent to which the COVID-19 pandemic has created a burning platform for automation. So I'm delighted to have my HFS partner in crime, Elena Christopher, with me today, as well as Ed Lynch from IBM. I'm also delighted to have Andrew Shotcott from Lloyd's Banking Group. So welcome, Elena, Ed, and Andy. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Let's uh, get to know our crew here a little bit. Andy, let's start with you. Yeah, no problem at all. So my name's Andy Shapcott. I'm the product owner for Intelligent Automation in Lloyd's Banking Group. And Intelligent Automation can be many things to many people. So the part that I cover is robotic process automation, uh, virtual assistants, our chatbot capability, a machine learning platform, uh, which all of our machine learning models uh, that we develop sit on. And then I also have something called digital and intelligent products. So that's our capability to turn scan documents or speech files into usable data uh, and then do the analytics on top of that. And and then alongside that, I have the pleasure of running all those once they've been built and developed. So, uh, so yeah, that's what I cover in Lloyd's Banking Group. Um, Ed, can you tell us what your role at IBM covers? Yeah, sure. So I'm Ed Lynch. I'm the vice president in charge of the digital automation business at IBM. And what Andy said is what I do for a living. I expand a little bit beyond RPA and I'm, I'm into some of the other technologies associated with automation like workflow management and decision management, content management. But the essence of the platform that I deliver to my clients is exactly what Andy's talking about. It's RPA, it's AI, it's an ML base, it's uh, intelligence, it's unstructured to structured transformation. All of those, all of those capabilities sit in the platform that I deliver to my clients. Okay, great. And Elena, uh, can you tell us about your research? Feel free to say what they said. <laughs> um, and also a little bit about the study that we did. I'm not running IA at a global bank. I'm not <laughs> running a, building a software business at a little firm called IBM. I am with the, the lovely firm HFS Research. I'm a senior vice president here and I lead our research for what we call our triple A trifecta, but looking at the intersection of the critical change agents of automation, analytics and artificial intelligence and the various permutations and how, well, essentially it's an, an essay in exploring the power of and, uh, which we'll get into a bit more about that today. Um, one of the very interesting things I've had the, the opportunity to do at HFS this year is we all were trying to figure out um, what the pandemic meant and hoping like heck it would be going away soon. Um, is we actually did a big study with um, IBM. Thank you, Ed and team. Um, but we spent a variety of time looking at what some of the pandemic impacts have been. So one of the things I'll try and do throughout some of our discussion today is share a few of those findings. So look forward to it. Lovely. All right, Andy. So in order to talk about the pandemic impact, I think it's important to establish some sort of baseline of, of what normal looked like in the before times. So what was Lloyd's automation program's mission from the start? When did it start? Yeah, no problem at all. So our journey started around 2018 and the aim was to build out part of the bank of the future capabilities. So our mission was about combining artificial intelligence and automation capabilities to deliver great outcomes for customers and colleagues, because lots of what we do 
either impacts what customers see and receive or what our colleagues do, i.e. freeing them up to do more value-adding jobs. So that, that was our goal at the start of 2018. Um, within that, then, we started building out those capabilities. Each one went at a kind of different speed, so they're at different maturity levels now. We wanted to create the right um, kind of base for us to expand them as a kind of enterprise solution. So there was some criteria against each one um, before we could do that. So we had to demonstrate value in our proof of concepts. We had to create internal capability. So we had to have colleagues that were able to run it and not be reliant on third parties. We were building an infrastructure for each of those that was going to be production ready and safe to scale. And then obviously, we're quite a safe and secure bank. So we needed to make sure that all the accountabilities and controls were in place that when we started using these across the whole of the bank, that it was safe to do so. So that was the journey we'd started on. As we got to the end of 2019, uh, some of those were at scale. So RPA, um, we were fully into hitting those criteria and expanding the use of RPA across the group. We were pretty mature in virtual assistants. We built a, a platform and, and we were using um, virtual assistants on all of our chat that you'd see through our mobile bank. Um, and then the, the scan documents, the speech files and things didn't come in till kind of halfway through uh, 2020. So the baseline was fairly strong, I'd say, uh, against most of the things we were using it. We were deploying it across the bank and it was adding uh, real value. And then obviously uh, the pandemic changed both the ways we were working and it also uh, changed the kind of priorities and, and focus that were on some of those uh, and the need for them to be used uh, much further. Got it. I'd love to just one quick clarifying question, Andy, for some of the, the technology components that you mentioned, because um, you talked about different levels of maturity. Um, should we understand that the point of the myriad technology, quite representative of the AAA, I might, I might mention, um, that the point of those is to use them in conjunction so that they're enhancing one another? I just want to be very explicit about that because it's a critical point. Yeah, no, absolutely. You're totally right. So what we were trying to build was that secure platforms and drive value early. So as they were being built and, and we could use them, we could drive the value. The real power then is how you start linking some of those. And that we've seen through some of the pandemic as we've linked RPA to virtual assistants to do some of the work straight through. Um, we're using RPA now to help some of our machine learning models uh, in terms of pulling data from different places. So the real power starts as you start connecting all of those. But I think you've got to almost be credible and have the solution in place on each of those platforms to then link them and, and start the next step of that trifecta that you talk about. Yeah. So Elena, do you think this is where most enterprises are? I mean, what is each of us uh, consider, you know, Lloyd's versus the, the industry abroad? It's funny. It's one of these very enduring questions. I think we were one of the firms back in like 2016 or something relatively early that we put out a maturity model. But if there's one thing I've learned about trying to um, sort of map where an enterprise is on their relative maturity. And what always sort of comes is like the second thought there is what's your scale? You hear that all of the time is that I've just learned that so much of it is in the eye of the beholder. And so that's why we always start our conversation 
asking about what are your objectives? The other part of your question though, Ratika was, is this where most ent enterprises are? Um, yeah, not, not so much. Um, well, a couple of data points. I mentioned I bring up some nuggets from the study, um, but I can tell you before our pre-pandemic baseline, and we'll use the singular technology of RPA, before the pandemic, so 2019, our data showed that um, um, RPA, the most sort of singular and consumable of automation technologies out there, 13% of enterprises in 2019 describe themselves as their, their RPA environments as scaled. So enter the pandemic, we tend to think at HFS, 2020 is the year that the world discovered that digital is not optional. So there are lots of interesting things that happened during this pandemic year. Um, but one of the things that did happen is that more enterprises started getting creative to, after you kind of got through the uh, reacting to the pandemic, figuring out what you were going to do, you had to keep the machine moving. So we have seen some growth of certainly RPA. Our latest data during 2020 actually shows that um, it's grown from first half of 2019 to maybe about 30% of scale and adoption. And some other, I think, core themes that we see that came out of our study is that we do see getting beyond RPA. That's a key one. I think the average number of tools from our study sample was actually a range of six different types of enabling automation technology. So that broad canon that we talked about before, very much in line with what you outlined, Andy. And also where it's being used. So many automation programs have been RPA-led, and even as they've expanded and added more tech in, the ultimate poster child for automation programs has been finance and accounting, and it's grown from there. But what we've seen throughout the year is we benchmarked it with this study. Uh, the state of automation is now is showing average use across six functions across the enterprise. And so while there's still very strong use within operations, um, it's expanding beyond, again, that sort of penultimate poster child of finance and accounting. And so generally speaking, we would say 2020, when we look at where we've come from, 2019, that 13% I mentioned, 2020, I think of lots of ambition, and thus our theme for today, the pandemic heralded the burning platform for automation. We're still sort of at lots and lots of ambition, but overall, by all of those measures that I mentioned, it's sort of ambition, but not scale. So sort of setting forth our uh, perhaps challenge as we go into what we're calling the very hopeful new dawn of 2021. So, Ed, do you agree with this pre-pandemic <laughs> of automation programs and uh, this idea that maturity is a relative term? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of the things that Andy was saying, I'm seeing in broader set of customers, what Elena was saying, broader set of customers. I mean, I, I characterize the pre-pandemic as there were some achievers who knew how to scale, who knew how to apply the technology, and they got scale. And they they got it from either top-down directive or bottom-up dabbling. They established centers of excellence like, like Andy's talking about, and they knew how to do it. Those were sort of the achievers. We had a lot of dabblers who were kind of trying things out, and a lot of RPA started as dabbling. It, it entered into the line of business, the um, uh, financial management, HR, that kind of thing where you could do task automation and you could you know, see instant return on your investment. A lot of those people who were dabbling, it turned into chaos because they weren't thinking about it in a systemic kind of a way. Clients were thinking about it in a, I want to, I want to achieve, I want to, you know, I want to get the return. 
but they weren't going at it quite systemically. They weren't collecting the data. They weren't looking for insight. They weren't applying the insight into the next step. And those people, I'd say, they probably, you know, skyrocketed and petered out and fell back to earth. Then the pandemic hit. And in all of the clients who I've spoken to, senior level clients, first thing that happened was panic. Like, what the heck just happened? Because those who hadn't done anything broke. Their processes broke. Their their desk procedures broke. Everything broke because it was all relied on sort of implicit relationships between the individuals who are either working in the front office or working in the back office, sitting sitting beside each other and you know getting their work done by pe- passing pieces of paper back and forth. Pandemic broke. Everybody started working from home. The next step that I've seen, which is a very common observation, is the CEOs said, we're not going to let this happen again. And that was the real catalyst that started some of the laggards to become achievers in this automation space. It was that, God damn it, we're not going to let this happen again. Fix this. And the direction went down to the COO, to the CIO, to the CTO. God damn it, we're not going to let this happen again. And that became a catalyst for uh, the automation, automation of the type that, that Elena was talking about, automation of the type that Andy's talking about. It was that top-down direction in reaction to the panic and in reaction to you know, the strategic, let's say, Darwinian survival instinct. We're not going to let ourselves go under because of these kind of things. So, yeah, a lot of what, um, a lot of what Andy's seeing, I see in the achievers. And a lot of laggards sort of dabbling and not really doing it systemically, not methodically, but now learning that methodically is the way to go. Just a quick comment. Back in April, all of us at HFS, we sort of looked at our respective coverage areas and we said, all right, let's put something together to, to talk about pandemic impact. And so the piece I wrote was called, <laughs> Don't You Wish You'd Done More About the <laughs> about automation, but it just reminded me of your comments, Ed. Uh, yeah, no, heard that from so many enterprises, which is like that, God, okay, don't, we wish we'd done more. So now is the time to do more. Let's go. Not to name any names, but there are clients who still rely on paper, like big banks still rely on paper, which must make Andy's hair gray because it, it's yeah. just, if he relied on paper, he'd be out of business. And you know, once the pandemic hit, anybody who relied on employees in the back office being able to sit beside each other and pass pieces of paper back and forth, they're done. They're cooked. Well, it's on over. That note, one of like the very unlikely stars of the pandemic has been e-signatures because you know how you used to get those signatures? With a pen and paper, shockingly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah exactly. And, and, and I think it's a great point, Len, because some of our technologies that we built previously, like document upload capability where customers can actually scan things and send them to us electronically have really come to the forefront. Whereas you'd have thought they were, you know, historic things that you take for granted. Suddenly, you know, they come back into it, sending documents securely to customers, you know, remote IDV where we take a selfie, you know, all those capabilities are suddenly just really being kind of driven forward as, uh, as something you have to have, not a nice to have, but a have to have uh, in terms of being able to do what you need to do day in, day out. I, one of the observations that, that I've had, and it, it occurred to me, let's say in May, after we shut down in March, was 
this is actually going to become the new normal. Like there's a, there's a gestalt switch that's happened because it's very unlikely that we're all going to go back to, well, business as usual. Let's just go back to that paper-based office. That's not going to happen. This yeah. is one of those, I think we're going to look back at this and say, this was a forcing function that changed the way that work actually gets done. And to Andy's point, yeah, we all dabbled. We all you know, created these different mechanisms. Now we're completely reliant on them. This is going to be the mission critical way going forward. So I look at this not as a sort of pre-pandemic, post-pandemic as, you know, go back to life as normal. I look at this, this as pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, the world has changed and now we're in a new world. And okay, let's get on with, you know, dealing in the new world. We were in the fortunate position. We had some credibility in Lloyd's already as a team. We delivered some things. So we were in that position where people could then adopt it. I was going to say the great thing from the pandemic, but that, you know, if you, you don't need a pandemic to do that, but it's, it's <laughs> it totally accelerated the requirements of automation and it opened people's eyes to what we had and how good it was yeah. when before there was optionality. So when you haven't got optionality, you look for the solution. When you find it and it's already in your business, then that's brilliant. And then you're taking that leap of faith that says it's scalable and it's usable. Um, and I think, you know, there were some things we had to do during the pandemic around bounce back loans, around mortgage holidays, that without the capability that we had and without it being scalable would have given us problems to do it in, in the efficient way that we did. Um, you know, and I, I think it's a true testament to your, when I look at the capability that we've got internally, that you can build robots in seven days or five days, test them, work them, and suddenly you've got a solution that's that's giving you hundreds of FTEs worth of work straight away um, on a complex thing. So um, I, I think, you know, Ed mentioned it's not a pre and post pandemic, it is a, the norm now and a different way of working and how you make the most of what we've invested in really. Yeah, I think it's a really critical point. Ed, you made it. Andy, you've just reiterated it. The idea for any organization to think that once we're done with this pandemic, oh, good, the vaccines are being distributed. We're going to go back to the way it was before. Let's be very clear. That is delusional thinking, that we are in the new normal without question. We are forever changed. What did our study results show to you know this aspect? The research we've done at HFS throughout 2020 um, does it support this view of the burning platform for automation and what were kind of the big findings here? So I'd say, sort of jokingly, I'd say three of the big things that we learned from this study, I'll say it is digital, data, and duh. Um, let, me, let me explain. Uh, so the digital is essentially what we've been saying. I, I think I describe it in the study as it's the pandemic created a recontextualization of digital. Andy, like you were saying, we had all of this optionality before. We didn't have to do things digital because we had other ways to get it done. So you're with Lloyd's Financial Institution. So I could go to the bank branch because it was there. I personally have not been in a bank branch for I'm not even sure how many years, but there are others who liked having that optionality until it was no longer an option. I mean, we were sort of joking at HFS at the start of 2020, where like, what does digital even mean anymore? Should we just shelf this topic? And then the pandemic rolled around and all of a sudden everyone's like, okay, if nothing else, digital is that which is not physical. 
it really recontextualized this term that had been wildly abused to the point that nobody knew what it meant anymore. Even though the description or definition I just gave it, digital is that which is not physical, that's incredibly oversimplistic. It's very understandable. So this recontextualization of digital, reimbuing it with meaning definitely has happened during the pandemic. So that's my first D. My second D is data. I've heard this from so many enterprises. Um, I'd love Ed and Andy if you guys will agree with me or not, but everyone has data, but putting it to better use, getting it in forms that can be consumed and getting it in a means that can help you drive some of that um, predictive insights. This was something like if there was anything that everyone was craving during the pandemic, it was tell me what will happen, help me tell the future. And so there is this real push for the predictive analytics. And then my last D is duh. And all I mean by that is what I've heard from so many enterprises and we see in lots and lots of data is this idea that, well, yes, digital is recontextualized. We realize we wish we had done more. The automation burning platform is here, but you know what, depending on what sector you're in, like let's take some, something that's been incredibly hard hit like the airline sector. This may not be the time that you're going out and spending lots of money. Um, although you can flip it because we're seeing lots of interesting examples with airlines themselves saying, okay, this is the time we are fully going to create touchless traveler experience, for example. Uh, but what I'm hearing behind the scenes from a lot of these organizations, and we interviewed Southwest Airlines, for example, for the study, one of the things they said, and this is the duh part, we need to use what we have. Enterprises have made so much investment in technology. It's sort of like that e-signature example I used before. Who didn't have that already? Everyone had that. It just in some cases, because there was optionality, it was not the tool that was used as the, the de facto standard. It was an option. So we see lots of enterprises that are looking around saying, all right, what do we have? okay, this is great, let's use it collectively. And you know what, here's a thought, let's work across some of our silos to collectively problem solve. So it doesn't mean that there's no more investment in technology, it's just doing a really strong canvas of what you've already invested in to make sure that you're making, if nothing else, sort of responsible use of what you have uh, and getting creative about your problem solving. So digital data and duh, those are three of the big findings from our study. You guys agree with me? Okay, yeah, let's dig into the dough part. So Ed, uh, you have a software focus. Uh, are you seeing enterprises trying to just use what they have or uh, investing in new technology still or, or something else entirely? The pandemic has changed the focus. Um, and to Elena's point, the focus now is more on collecting data, actually learning what's going on and then generating insight, which can either be predictive insight or recommendation insight. Recommendation being, how do I do something faster? How do I do a lookup? You've seen the same claims form 13 times. You've approved it every time. I recommend you approve. That kind of machine learning classification kind of a problem. Whereas before the pandemic, people were looking much more strategically. Those who were, as I called them, the achievers were looking as strategic. They were looking at mission critical things. They were looking at you know, in the banking sector, you were looking at, okay, I'm gonna have some compliance officer looking over my shoulder. I've got to do all those compliance things because if I don't, I'm going to go to jail or my company's going to get written up in the front page of the Wall Street Journal or, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it was more strategic. Now it's okay. Now we have to automate 
I want to collect data from every single automation so that I know what's going on. I know what's actually happening. I want to generate insight. I want to generate recommendations. So anybody who is a human being, knowledge worker who has to get something done can actually use real facts to get things done. One of the tricks here, and I, I appreciate Andy's view on this. One of the tricks is, you know that in the data scientist's life, a good chunk of their time is spent data wrangling, identifying which are the key features, principal component analysis, identifying the, the key feature, which is you know, the significant contributor to the outcome of the model. If you don't have data, you can't even do any of that stuff. If you do have data and it's in 19 different places to Elena's point about silos, you're in a mess because the data scientists can't do anything. So you can't generate insight from random pieces of data. You have to have curated data. You have to have a, a lake where you know what the schema of the lake is. You know what the pieces in the lake are. And then you can create the models against a pre-curated set and then you can get things done. So it's that need for insight, which is driving collection of data. The only way to collect data is to have a connected platform that joins all the pieces together and deposits operational data into a lake. And not just randomly into a lake where you do BTL jobs and grab things you know, from here, the hither and yon, but it's gotta be curated so that you can get things in real time. I, Andy, let me toss that over to you. I mean, I, I think anybody who's well-organized would see having BTL jobs is always good post facto because you can join things together and make things really good. But having real insights at the time that you need to make a decision, that's a really hard problem. And, and it is a hard problem. And I, and I love the way you describe uh, the challenges around data because, you know, the quality of it, how you connect it in. And data scientists now uh, are far more demanding than they probably would have been. They expect to be onto a platform, to be onto a system that has got a secure data flow into it the right data that then they can start building their machine learning models safely and 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 all of that is driven by good data and the insights at the back of that are only as good as the quality in the data sources you're using lots of decisions are going to be made on those predictive data models so data drives everything you know and and i and i think without good data, I mean, you describe it as data lakes, you know, data hubs, whatever you, you have, um, are, are critical in terms of making the most from some of the automation and the AI capabilities that are being built. So it's an underpinning factor for me. Yep. But I'd say that that observation of data is not pervasive to Elena's point. I'd say that those who are really scaling now, now we're nine months into the pandemic, they had some kind of data mechanism to collect operational data before this started. Those are gonna be the achievers in my mind. The laggards are the ones who are catching on to the fact, holy crap, now I'm caught with my pants down. I really do need to, you know, to get onto this, you know, get onto this train. They're gonna be behind, but this is gonna be a very interesting, you know, next 12 months as, uh, as clients jump on board to the fact that automation is not only key, it is now essential and the data is the only way to make automation real. And so the combination of data, automation, AI is, in my mind, it's now sealed in the new normal. Is that what's really holding us back from truly making automation pervasive, driving digital transformation, anything else that you would like to advise um, folks out there? I think there's a lot of fear. You know, when, when AI comes in, AI is spooky. 
It's a new technology. Nobody understands how it works. It's guarded by the messiahs who speak some foreign language, sort of like the doctors in the Middle Ages, where they all spoke Latin and, you know, confused everybody because they had a language that, that no one else understood. AI is spooky to many. To those who, who've been working with it and working with it for a long time, it's just mathematics. At the end of the day, it's just probability theory. It's just the application of, you know, some very sophisticated techniques. All those techniques are encoded. You don't have to know all the details. You just have to know the principles and then you can apply it. So I think there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of fear on, am I really going to let the machine decide whether somebody qualifies for unemployment benefits? Like, seriously, are you really going to do that? You want to have clarity and you want to have visibility. So there's a lot of fear around this new technology, mostly because, well, it's new and because it's sophisticated and because it's kind of spooky. But you get yourself, you know, a little bit, little bit more comfortable with it. It becomes an extremely powerful element in what you're doing. So getting across that fear hump um, is, is a big one. I'd say that you have to have top-down direction and bottom-up work joining. If you just have top-down direction, you get a lot of people who are you know, disgruntled and pissed off. Why do I have to do this crap? If you just do bottoms up, you get chaos. If you get the join of top-down and bottom-up at the same time, that's where you get you know, real productive implementation. Yeah, Andy, how do you take us from spooky to spectacular on AI? And, and look, I, I think that's one of the, the challenges that I see with people working in, in this field is some people love to turn what could be a complex and spooky subject into simplicity. Some people love making it more complex and more um, difficult to understand because it almost creates that air of importance. I, I, I think the criticality is how do you get over that hump of fear? Uh, and I've seen it through each of the journeys. I remember people being nervous about robotics rpa you know going wild and and have i got kill switches to switch it off and things and that's because they they didn't understand how it worked so you get them over that hump and i think there's there's almost a scale rpa is easier to understand virtual assistants and chatbots are probably the next easiest to understand to ed's point when you get to um, kind of machine learning models it, it becomes almost more like a, a dark art and and people don't understand how decisions are being made and outcomes are being driven from this. But in reality, that is absolutely on point. It, it's a probability. And the data scientists are brilliant at them pulling it together in thousands of data sources to make it more and more accurate. But it is a probability model that gives you better forecasting and better prediction models than a human sat there on their own. So that's the, the art of what we're doing. And then I think that the point that I'd mentioned around kind of compliance, regulation and things like that, that, you know, we've worked hard on making sure models are auditable and all those kind of things. So it's very easy to demonstrate what a robot's doing. It's very easy to show how a chatbox come up with what it's answered to a customer. Um, it's harder to, to show that on a machine learning model and therefore auditability within your platform to be able to come back to this is how the decision was made at the time it is important. And that drives all the fear then out. But I'm saying that we've been at this for three years and there is still lots of fear. Um, you know, and, and I'll come back to it at the start of the journey. I will never forget someone saying to me on RPA alone is 
is a robot like C-3PO going to come into our office and start doing work? You know, that's, that was the baseline in 2018 for me, you know, and, and that's what the expectation was. So we've come on the long journey, but there's still a lot to go around how we simply describe what we're trying to do and, and make it easy for everyone to understand the capability that we're building. Just two quick comments off the back of that, which is just the, we talk people, process, technology, data is the, the one we've added in, but the, the fifth, what really rounds out what was once the golden triangle back from the early 90s and idle manuals, oh goodness, I'm dating myself, um, is change management. And it's not technology change, it's not just organizational change. It's, a, it's the various permutations of change management, and it's also not a point in time, it's ongoing. So just so much of that, the, the fear uh, and overcoming it, you do that through good communication and helping people learn and understand. We've been starting to refer to this as really upping the uh, digital fluency quotient um, of your employees because part of why they understand is because they see it in context, they understand how it functions. And then very briefly, Andy, I will say um, to all of the software manufacturers out there, um, and I think you guys at IBM have been a bit better about this, but enough with the pictures of physical robots, seriously. <laughs> Lightning round, because I realized that we are just about out of time on this session. Um, I'd love for each of you to share one actionable takeaway for enterprises that are striving to optimize the impact of automation in their businesses. So let's start with Andy, lightning round. Okay, so look, everyone gets excited about building the capability, but the critical point for me is investing in creating a consistently stable run operation. That would be my takeaway. That's great. Ed? I think my takeaway is that Businesses are, are yearning for insight and they, they really want to know what's going to happen next. And you can't get insight unless you have data and you can't get data in the proper form unless you have, you know, platforms that don't operate in silos that dump operational data in a consistent kind of a way. So the connection of those three things as you're building out your automation platform is critical. Completely agree. Elena? As an enterprise, if you're really striving for transformation, do yourself a favor and get beyond RPA. I fully agree with your earlier point, Andy, which is you need to have the baseline, you need to have the knowledge, but you're not going to do anything that's inherently transformative if that's where you stop. You have to get the process um, intelligence on the front end. You need to be able to grapple with unstructured data. You need to get some brain power to the rules-based arms and legs of RPA and various other elements. Oh, and by the way, you need to, speaking of data, you need to be able to prove what your results are. It's a, a lovely village that emphasizes the power of and. But if you really want to drive transformation rather than faster, cheaper, that's what you need to focus on. So I'll just dig into Andy's point a little bit more on, on the data side to say, you know, machine learning technologies today can be applied to solve some of our data challenges on, um, you know, metadata management, uh, data ingestion, auto cataloging. And so there's so much modernization that you can now bring in to even help that, you know, data lifecycle. 
um, to make progress on automation because it obviously has a downstream impact. So that would be my my one tidbit there. With that, I think that's a wrap. So thank you so much, Andy, Ed, Elena. It's been a pleasure. Um, this was fantastic. I've, I've certainly learned a lot. For those listening, I would love your feedback. Please visit our research website or blog and give us a shout. Uh, this is Ritika signing off with HFS Straight Talk. Thank you and goodbye. Thanks for having us. Bye. Thank you.